that uh, today as we get into uh, the scripture. Um, why don't we stand together? John chapter 5. If you have it, say amen. If you don't have it, say glory a Dios. Oh, look at that. Glory a Dios. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, it's up on the screens anyway. So uh, let's uh, go into God's Word together. I'll start and you guys can continue reading. We're going to read from uh, verse 18 through verse 29. John 5, 18 through 29. Let's begin. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Amen. Amen. Today, I'm going to be speaking on the subject, God's equal. God's equal. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful and grateful this day that you have given us the incredible gift of your word. And Lord, that by your spirit, you're able to press that word into minds and hearts and transform us. We are Grateful for the finished work of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, take this time over these next few minutes to press that very word into our hearts and glorify your name in and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. God's equal. We see uh, in verse 18 of uh, this chapter that Jesus is accused, he stands accused of making himself equal with God. The interesting thing is that Jesus never once denies that accusation. But we'll see as we unpack the scripture today that what he does is not deny it, but he explains exactly what it means that he is equal with God. Um, before we get into the text, I wanted to use a horrific and bad analogy. I don't know if that's smart as a preacher to say, I'm going to give you an analogy, it's terrible, right? But whenever you start doing analogies for the Trinity, they always fall short, right? Um, but but I, I've always been interested in, in science, and uh, although I'm not a scientist, been interested in like looking at the vastness of the glory of God through His creation. And you can look at it on the atomic level and, and see the nucleus uh, of an atom with protons and with neutrons and then electrons spinning all around it uh, at such a small scale that it, it, it's amazing that it can be seen in any way. Uh, but, but then you look at God on the massive scale, in the, the grandeur of uh, the universe that He has created. And 
Um, one, one way to do that, most of us went through fourth grade or fifth grade, wherever you do your science project, and then many people end up doing a, a solar system thing. How many people know what I'm talking about? You know, you put together your little solar system, and then the third rock from the sun is Earth, right? Um, and, and you have all these planets that are orbiting around the sun, and, and I was curious, how in the world does that work? The earth is a pretty big place. I live on it. I've traveled around to some different places. It's pretty huge. How is it that we, through the course of a year, orbit around this star, which we call the sun, that's 93 million miles away? How does that work? It's massive. In the course of a year, to orbit the sun, uh, the earth travels 584 million miles I don't know how long your commute is. Some people, you know, are, are, are complaining about their commute. It ain't that long. 584 million miles in the course of a year. It orbits the sun. How does that work? And so I'm not a scientist, so I'm going to give you the Sesame Street version of how that works. There's two primary forces at work. The first force is the force of gravity because of the massive size of the sun, it has a powerful gravitational uh, impact and force for everything that is around it. The sun is huge. The sun is so big that you could fit 1,300,000 earths inside of the sun. That's how big it is. Uh, scientists say that 998 6% of the mass of our solar system is in the sun. You think about how large the solar system is, all the planets and everything else in it, 99.86% of the mass of uh, our solar system is in one place. 333,000 times the mass of the earth is the sun. It is uh, to use, now, now this is a technical scientific term, so just forgive me for a moment. It is humongous. It's humongous. So it, because of its size, it has a powerful gravitational impact that draws things to itself. Now, because of that, you would think, well, then why doesn't the Earth and Mars and, and, and Venus and Neptune and Jupiter and all the other planets, why don't they get caught in that gravitational pull of the sun and go into the sun, and of course we would burn up because of its heat. I'm glad you asked that question. You're tracking well today. So the, the, the reason that it doesn't is because of another force, and that is the fact that although I hope you don't feel it right now as you're sitting at the second service at Epiphany Fellowship on a Sunday morning, the earth is actually going through the solar system at a rate of about 67,000 miles per hour. That's pretty fast, by the way. So I hope you don't feel that. You'd probably need to take some Dramamine or something if you did. So we're, we're moving at this incredibly rapid speed, but uh, th this force of gravity keeps us from just going out in a straight line into the solar system or into the universe. It keeps us from doing that, but the fact that we're going so fast and at exactly and precisely the right speed, the right distance, the right mass of the earth, the right gravitational pull of the, the sun, that we travel around that sun year after year, decades, centuries, millennia go by and we travel around the sun. God has designed something perfectly. I do not understand Someone that, that looks into science and cannot see the hand of an intelligent designer, God, at work as you look at the intricacy, the beauty, and the precision of his handiwork. In a similar way, not the same way. In this scripture we'll see that Jesus, as he's accused of being equal with God, does not deny it. But, and, and so, in one sense, the Jews are correct about that. He is claiming to be equal with God. But they're wrong in their understanding of what that means. How is that so? How is Jesus equal 
with God. God has designed it so, this triune God, that Father and Son work together perfectly and in concert, and we know as well, along with the Holy Spirit, in order to uh, bring a people to Himself, to save a people for Himself, that He might be glorified and exalted in all the universe. Everything seen and unseen will bow before Him at His majesty and glory because of what He's done. God has designed it perfectly. And Jesus in this this chapter that we're looking at is going to, to let the Jews know, yeah, you got it right, I am equal with God, but you've got it wrong, you don't understand what that is what that looks like. So the two questions that we want to answer today are, are these. Number one, how is Jesus equal with God? But, but also, therefore, what does that mean to me? What does that mean to me? Uh, if, if I'm just giving you a bunch of theoretical uh, uh, theology, then I'm not doing uh, what God has called me to do as a preacher. So I hope and pray that you'll not only see exactly what this relationship looks like as Jesus reveals it, but you'll also understand the impact that that is meant to have in your life. So let's jump in to the scriptures here. Let's look at starting at verse 19. And the scripture says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on His own accord. Let's stop right there. And look at verse 30 as well. Jesus says it again, I can do nothing on my own. First of all, I'm, I'm blown away by those phrases in Scripture. Jesus in John's Gospel is presented from the beginning of the Gospel Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In in, in verse 3 of that same chapter, the Bible is going to tell us that everything that was made was made by Him, and then He says, and nothing was made without Him making it. He just makes it real clear. Jesus made all things in the beginning. He was not only with God, but he was God. He is the massive God of the universe. And yet he says here, I can't do anything. Actually, the word, one of the words that's used in there, it's a word you've probably heard a lot by preachers. We like this word. I like this word, dunamis. You've heard the word dunamis. It's a Greek word that means power, but it also means ability. And he says, I got no dunamis. I've got no power. I've got no ability to do anything by myself. What? Now, it's interesting because when I I was studying this and looking at this, I remember John 15, 5. Jesus uses almost exactly the same phrase when he's talking about you and me. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, dunamis, you are not able to do anything apart from me. Now, I don't know about you, but I get that with me. I kind of, like, I understand that with me. In other words, he's not saying that you can't physically do anything, but you will never do anything to give glory and honor to God apart from being in an abiding relationship with me that he's talking about in John 15. I get that. I don't know about you, but I get that I am a mess in process, amen? With a capital M and a capital S, I'm a mess. I get that. I, I, I need help. My wife gets that really, really well. She understands that. So when, when we get that, like, yeah, I can do nothing apart from Jesus, but here Jesus himself is saying that I can do nothing. I can't do anything apart from the Father, See, the, 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 the Jews are accusing Jesus not just of being equal with God, but being subversive to God's promises and God's ways. They're saying, because earlier in verse 18, they say he's destroying the Sabbath. In this chapter, John chapter 5, it starts with a man beside a pool, a man who was an invalid for 38 years, could not get up, could not move, was unable in any way to help himself, and Jesus comes to this man, and Jesus speaks with him, and Jesus heals him. 
This man who for 38 years was a helpless invalid, Jesus, by his power, it's the third of the seven signs in the Gospel of John. John, uh, Jesus heals this man and gives him life, but it was on the Sabbath day. Jesus just has this incredible uh, uh, thing that you see all the time. Why he always have to heal on the Sabbath? <laughs> He's poking and poking at the religious leaders of the day. And they're saying, not only did he heal the man, then he told the man, you got to pick up your stuff and walk with it. Boy, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Jesus, don't you understand? This is Saturday. This is the Sabbath day. God set it apart, and it's a day where we shouldn't work. Why are you healing people? At one point, it gets so stupid. Listen how stupid this is, because not only were the commandments from the Old Testament there, but they added unto them commandment after commandment after commandment in their traditions, so much so that you remember one of the miracles of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus heals a man who was was blind and he spits on the ground and makes mud you remember that one of the Jewish laws was you can't spit on the ground on the Sabbath because it makes mud and that's work it got crazy that's not in the Bible don't look for that in the Bible it's in their traditions so the traditions, these, these added things, really took away what the Sabbath was meant to be and made it uh, something of rules and regulations. And Jesus is going to say at one point, uh, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Right, right. right? So, but, but they just see rules, and you're breaking the Yahweh rules. How dare you, Jesus, break the, you, the rules of Yahweh? But Jesus says, no, you got it wrong. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not just doing this on my own. I only do what I see the Father doing. First point, how is Jesus God's equal? He is the submissive and beloved son. He's the submissive and beloved son. You see, they, they see Jesus' equality with the Father as being contradictory or competitive with the Father, but Jesus says it's not contradictory, it's not competitive, it is complementary, it is submissive. I do what I see the Father doing. Jesus' equality does not aim to undercut the authority of the Father, but it shows us who the Father is. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In John 14, Philip comes to Jesus and says, this, all this stuff you're doing is great, you're blowing our minds, but if you would just show us the Father, it would be enough. Jesus said, bro. Actually, he said, bro. I still can't say that right. I still can't say that right. I'm trying, I'm learning. Bro. <laughs> if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Don't you get it? When you see me, you've seen the Father. You want a full helping of God? Look at me, Jesus says. You want to understand him? You need to look at me. You see, they're, they're, they're thinking that not only is he claiming to be equal with God, but he is undercutting the, the, the God that they've known from Abraham, Moses, and the prophets. Look at verse 39. Verse 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. He says, you're looking at the Bible and saying, aha, you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. He says, from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Malachi, every scripture of the Old Testament that you're counting on is pointing to me. It's about me. And you've made it about rules and regulations. And don't you understand that when I heal this man, this poor man who for 38 years couldn't move, I am showing, I am manifesting the compassion, the love, and the power of Yahweh? Don't you get it? No, we just know you did it on a, on a, on a Sabbath day and you shouldn't do it then. Ah, you don't get it. The same God that carried you out of Egypt through the Red Sea, the same God that fed you for 40 years in the wilderness with bread that came from heaven, the same God that brought water out of a rock 
to, 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 give, to, to satisfy the thirst of thousands. This same God is having compassion on this man. Don't you get it? They didn't get it. Jesus is equal with God, but he is equal as the one who reveals God's love and compassion perfectly. He's equal. See, for some of us, we live in a day and age where uh, one of the greatest values that we have is open-mindedness. you got to be open-minded about stuff. And and open-mindedness can be very helpful in a lot of things, if we'll be honest. But there's some things where we need to be careful about just how open our mind is. Right. It's like we've taken our brain and said, just pour anything you want in. There's some things you know, right? I hope that there are some things that you are sure of and that you know. And so many times... Uh, People are looking for identity, we're looking for comfort, we're looking for security, we're looking for safety. When we're looking for all those things, what are we looking for? We're really looking for God. And we're looking in all kinds of unauthorized places. And Jesus says, look to me, I'm God. See, sometimes we need to narrow our search for God. We need to look to Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. Look at verse 20. He says, if I can read it with my old eyes, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. Jesus says this relationship between father and son is not a competitive thing, but the father loves the son. He, he loves him. They, they, they are working together in concert, and the father showing him what he's doing, and he says, greater works than, than these shall you see. In John's gospel, there are seven uh, signs or miracles that Jesus does in this gospel. The first one, and, and, and they, they move from the least to the greatest in some ways if you look at the progression of these miracles. Now the first one is making water into wine at, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee in chapter 2. You know that one? Now how many of you think that's the greatest one? If that's you, then we need to counsel after service today. It's not the greatest miracle. Some of you are like, yes! Water into wine. That sounds like a good miracle to me. But, but they move on and on. This is the third miracle. Later on in chapter 9, he's going to uh, 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 heal a man who was blind from birth, something that had never been done. In chapter 11, what I believe is the sixth sign in John's gospel, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He's been dead and in the grave for four days already. Something like that had never happened before. Matter of fact, that's, that miracle was so great, not only did they make up their mind to kill Jesus, but they also said, oh gosh, we got to kill Lazarus too. Because everybody's going to see Lazarus. They know he was in the grave for four days. He was, you know, he was gone. He was long gone. But Jesus healed him. So we see all this. And then the greatest miracle in, in, in the gospel is the miracle of the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. That is the capstone of all the signs of God in the gospel. We, we look to him. The Father loves the Son. But not only is he the submissive and beloved Son, but he's also the life-giving judge look with me at verse 21 the scripture says for as the father raises the dead and gives life and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will the second word in that uh, verse as it just seems like a little you know one of those little throwaway words that we have but it's an important word and grammatically that word is actually called an emphatic marker of similarity. It could be translated, and it is other times in this same chapter, just as, or in exactly the same way. So when Jesus says, for just as, or in exactly the same way as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son. Like, I do the same thing in the exact same way. In other words, they're claiming that 
he's saying that he's equal with God. He's saying, well, let me show you how I'm equal with God. If, if you think Yahweh, you've seen in, in the Bible, the Old Testament, that Yahweh is the one who raises the dead, then that's me too. I do it in the same way. Not in some kind of little God kind of way. In some, I'm going to help him with that. But no, he says, in the exact same way that you understand that of Yahweh, the God of the universe, that's me. Check me out. In the same way, an emphatic marker of similarity there, uh, he says, this is the equal sign of what I do. He is the life-giving judge. See, one of our problems sometimes in our relationship with Jesus is maybe we've gotten a little bit too familiar with Jesus. It's, you want to know him more, but, but you know how it is sometimes when you get familiar with people? And, or maybe that's happened to you. Jesus said at one point, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. Some of you know what that's like. You've got a PhD, a master's degree. You've, you've done a lot of work. You've made uh, money. You've done different things. And, uh, you know, I just want mama or daddy to be proud of me. I want somebody to say, good job, son. But sometimes when you go around your family of origin, all of a sudden you're four years old again. And how come you didn't clean up the sink right? Or how come you, like, what? I just, I'm telling you about what, what the Lord is doing and what, what's happened in my life, and, but there's, there doesn't seem to be any respect for that. Now, sometimes if we are not careful believers in Jesus Christ, we can have that kind of familiarity bias with God himself and with Jesus. Jesus becomes our best buddy. He becomes our pal. He becomes our homie. Did I say that right, homie? I don't know. He, beca he becomes like, and, and, and we forget he is the living Lord and judge of all the universe. Life and death are in his hands. He's not just some little pal that we hang around with anymore. Look at verse 22. This is amazing. He says, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Verse 27 Again, my old eyes need to focus here. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. You see, all judgment has been given to Jesus. The father doesn't judge. Jesus is going to be that final judge. He is a great and awesome and holy God. He is more than just your best friend and your buddy. Now, he's a best friend in a way that no other best friend could ever be. I hope when you know him, you know him that way. But he's not just your buddy. He is the Lord and the final judge of all things. It all comes to Jesus' feet. So, here we go. Not only is he the submissive and beloved son, the life-giving judge, but also he is the one to whom all honor is due. Look with me at verse 23. I'll start at verse 22 just for context. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Verse 23, that all may honor the son. Here's that phrase again. Just as, in the same way as, they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Jesus says honor is due to the son in the same way that you've learned again from Abraham from Moses from all the prophets to honor Yahweh in the same way that you understand that you're called to worship uh, Jehovah God of the universe in that same way he says all honor is due to the son as a matter of fact he says if you're not honoring the son then you're not honoring the father if you're not honoring the son if you're not giving your life to him if you're not bowing before him not just with your knees but with the disposition of your heart then you are not honoring God at all what do you do with Jesus he says the son must be honored even as the Father is honored. It is impossible to honor God without honoring Jesus. Now, you know, 
you say, well, I'm in church. I'm a Christian. I get that. I've got that my whole life. A lot of people, sometimes we don't get it that well, though, if we'll be honest. I hear too many loose phrases as we talk about God. Someone says, well, you know, <laughs> the man upstairs, he done blessed me real good. I'm like, well, what floor am I on right now? What floor is he on? What do you mean the man upstairs? It's not the man upstairs. It's God and it's Jesus Christ who's blessed me. Not, not no man upstairs. We might talk about the force or, or you know, the power. Some people talk about uh, we, we worship ancestors. Look, we're not called to worship ancestors. We, we ought to respect ancestors. If, if they have done great things in the past to make your life easier and better, we respect them, we honor them, we give thanks for them, but we don't worship anyone but the God of this Bible. And we do that as we honor Jesus Christ. We do that as we honor Jesus Christ. Um, let's move on. How do we honor him? How do we honor him? Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Two ways that we honor him. First of all, hearing, he says, hearing my word. Again, that's an emphatic phrase. Not just hearing the word, not just reading the word, but he says, my word. He who hears my word. How do you hear his word? Now, for all of us, we can hear things in different ways. I hear things in at least three different ways that I can uh, convey to you right now. One way is that sometimes I can be a preoccupied hearer. I can be preoccupied with things. Another way is I can be a passive hearer. And lastly, I can be an active hearer. So let, let's, let's break that down. What does that look like? Well, first of all, as a preoccupied hearer, let's just draw out this scenario. It's a Sunday afternoon in October. And I've had a wonderful time of worshiping the Lord with uh, my, my friends and brothers and sisters at Epiphany Fellowship all day. We have worshiped. We've heard the word. Our souls have been encouraged and strengthened. Just a wonderful time. And now I'm back at home and the Eagles game happens to be on. The Eagles are playing the Cowboys. It's the fourth quarter of the game. They're behind by six points, but, uh, and time is running out, but they're driving down the field. And in the midst of this, I hear these beautiful words coming from uh, downstairs in my house. My wife says, sweetie, dinner's ready. And I may have a reaction that says, uh, thank you, honey, I'll be right there. But I almost guarantee you that reaction was more like a reflex than actually something that went through my cerebral cortex. Because right now, I'm not thinking about dinner's ready. Right now, I'm focused on one thing. Get that ball down that field. Come on, let's score a touchdown. So she's speaking to me. I may even react to it by reflex, but I'm not hearing it. Not really. Now let's draw a second scenario. It's not Sunday anymore, it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday and I've come home uh, from a long day of work and uh, my, my wife, uh, I'm upstairs again and, and my wife says in her beautiful voice up the stairs, sweetie, dinner's ready. <laughs> but there's something she doesn't know about my life. And that is that on the way up Broad Street from, from uh, Epiphany Fellowship to our home, which is about three miles north of here, just off of Broad Street, uh, I saw a sign. I think it was intentionally planted there by the devil, uh, by Beelzebub, because it said checkers on it. And, and, and there was a big piece of beef right in the middle of it, and... I know this is the devil because the cheese was melting all over the beef. And, and, and more than that, there were fries with stuff all over them. You know, checkers fries. And, and, and the devil got the best of me. And I kept trying to make my car go straight, but it pulled off <laughs> into the checkers. And I did eat and consume a quantity of checkers. And so... I get home, and my wife says, sweetie, dinner's ready. 
I'm not hungry. I might have heard it, and I'll eventually go downstairs. But uh, she doesn't know. I'm, I'm already full. Now, third scenario, it's not Sunday. It's not Tuesday, but it's Friday, and I'm home again, and I had breakfast in the morning, but I missed. I didn't have any snacks during the day, didn't have any lunch. And I go home, and I'm upstairs. And by, by the way, this does not happen every day in my home. <laughs> FYI, a.k.a. Especially during the summer, I grill a lot, so sometimes I'm saying, sweetie, dinner's ready. So sometimes it goes the other way around, but however we do that. But it's a Friday uh, late in the afternoon, in the early evening, and my wife, uh, and I'm hungry. I've been, I haven't eaten all day, basically, and my wife says, sweet. As soon as she says sweet, I'm like, where is the food? Is it ready? Is it there? I'm ready to eat. That's called being an active listener. That's an active listener. Now, here's the question. How do you listen to God? How do you listen to God? Are you a preoccupied listener? Are there so many things going on in your life that when, that even, even as you're doing your devotions, like you, you do it because you know you should do it. I'm a Christian. I should, do, I should spend time with God, and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and I can check that off, but nothing's really going on in your heart. Because you, you, you're, you're reading John chapter 5, but you're thinking about a situation on your job. Look, all of us go through this, right? You, look, the middle of prayer, especially if you're praying with someone else, and they're praying, and all of a sudden your mind is anywhere else but in the middle of prayer, right? For, for some folk, like you want to, you can't fall asleep, you have, uh, uh, what do you call it when you can't fall asleep? You have, ins- thank you, you have insomnia, start praying. For some people, that's the cure. <laughs> you're a preoccupied listener. Look, if you're, and, and look, for all of us, I recognize and realize that we live in an age and in a day where our lives are overcrowded with many, many, many things. Stress is everywhere. Demands are on us in a million different ways, whether it's school, whether it's work, whether it's family, whatever it may be. Like right now, I'm middle-aged. I realized I was middle-aged a little while ago when my daughter was having a baby, when I was going through some physical issues with uh, my eyes and stuff and needed to go to the doctor for that, and my father was having some physical issues and I needed to, I'm like, I am in the middle right now. I'm middle-aged. This is busy. I don't know how to put all this together. But for all of us, we're very busy, sometimes overwhelmed. Listen, if you're a preoccupied listener, don't look somewhere to think that suddenly time is going to go show up on your calendar to be with Jesus. You're going to have to block out that time. You're going to have to make that time. You're going to have to force your way in to make that time with Jesus and say, this is my priority. Because if you don't, you just won't find it. What about not only being a preoccupied listener, but a passive listener? Some of us can be passive because, several different reasons. One, we're passive listeners because... Things are going pretty well in life right now. Things are okay. Now, if you've lived more than about five years, you know that they may be good for a while, and then you'll go through a hard time, right? Because you know the cyclical nature of what we go through. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, it doesn't matter. Life in a fallen world can be difficult at times, but we do go through seasons of relative quiet, of relative peace, of blessing. Thank God if you're there. But here's the problem. is too often when we're in that place, we get satisfied too easily with God. And because we're satisfied by other things, maybe in this world, John put it this way in 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse uh, uh, 15. He said, Beloved, love not the world, nor the things of the world, for all that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the of the flesh and the boastful pride of life is not from God but it's from the world and the world is passing away and also it's lust but he that does the will of God abides forever be careful of being satiated by the nice things in the world and how good things are for you you get too easily satiated look if that's you 
and you're kind of full, and you've got enough God. You don't, you don't, need, to, you don't need to do all that to get it in with God. Listen, you need a heart change. You need a heart operation, and you need to ask God to give you a brand new appetite. I know I just ate that checkers burger and all those fries, but right now, mama made some good food. I need to eat some new food. Lord, make some room for that right here. You know, we need to ask God to give us an appetite and desire for God that's not satiated easily by the things of this world. Are you hungry for Jesus? If you're not, admit that you're not hungry for Jesus and begin to cry out to God and say, Lord, make me hungry. I remember back in the day. I remember when I came to you at first how hungry I was. Lord, renew that in me. I want to know you. I want to be hungry for you. I want to be hungry. And so I hope that wherever we are on this scale, that we're desiring to be in that place all over again where we're hungry for Christ. So the last part of this, he says not only uh, in verse 24, whoever hears my word, but also whoever believes in him who sent me, believes, believes in him who sent me. That, that is a loaded word in the Bible. It's interesting that in John chapter 1 and in John chapter 8 and in other places, in John's gospel, you'll see people believing in Christ but not being saved. Now, some of us are like, nah, that's not what Romans 8 says. But, but you've got to understand what the Bible means when it uses the word believe. It's not just that I can check off the list. Yep, I believe that he is God in the flesh. Check. I believe that he's the second person of the Trinity. Check. I believe that he died for my sins. Check. I believe that he physically rose again from the grave. Check. I believe that he's coming back again. Check. See, I'm good. I believe in Jesus. And I just go on living my life like I lived, whether I believed or not believed. Bible says that's not, that's not what the Bible calls believing. The word in Greek is pistis or pistuo is the verb to believe. And the definition of it is this. Believe means to entrust oneself to an entity in complete confidence. To believe in or trust with the implication of total commitment to the one who is trusted. To believe in or trust with the implication of total commitment to the one who is trusted. Do you believe in Jesus? Not the check mark, but the one to whom you commit your life. You see, we honor God as we hear His word and as we commit our whole life to Him. James said it this way, don't just listen to my word, do what it says. Now listen, for some we miss honoring Christ in many ways. We can miss him, I got four different ways here real quick, because our relationship with him is too casual. Talked about it before, he's my buddy, buddy friend. Yeah, this is Jesus, I hang with him. No, we miss honoring God in that. We can miss honoring God because of a preoccupation with goals in our lives, whether that's school, whether that's career, whether that's relationships, whether it's family, whatever it is, we have all of these goals and they, they tend to, to, to root out or to dismiss our time with Christ. Let me ask you this. What are your goals for Jesus? We should know that as believers. If someone says, what are your goals in your relationship with God? You should be able to say, I've got goals. You've got them for all these other things. What about for Christ? Make your goals for Christ. Thirdly, Allowing sin to become master over us. Allow, giving in to sin and allowing it to become master over us. In Romans 6, 11 and 12, Paul says these words, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. It says, don't give in so easily to sin. Don't allow it to rule and reign in your life. Look, as believers in Jesus Christ, 
that we can put believers in two camps. One, those who struggle against sin. And then secondly, those who say they don't struggle against sin. Now, we could also say those who lie. That's another way of saying that same thing, which is a sin which they're not struggling with, which we wish they were, right? So, so as a believer, to say that you're not letting sin rule over you is not saying that you're not aware of and engaged in the daily struggle against sin that is pressing up against you, but it is to say that you are aware that God is the source of power and by His Spirit and the Word you can overcome in so many areas of your life and walk with God in a way that pleases Him. We're called to walk that way. Not just to say, well, this is really hard. You know, God knows my heart. Oh, gosh. I don't want to hear that phrase again. But, but so here, here we are. So listen, let, let, me, let me make this clear uh, with an application of it. Now, uh, in this day and age, we're, we're dealing with a, a lot of things in our culture around LGBT, right? Right? Now, now, it's not just LGBT anymore. It's LGBTQ, and then it's LGBTQI, and then it's LGBTQIA, which I just learned in the last service, okay? So we're dealing with people who have different issues around uh, their, their sexual understanding of themselves, their orientation, all that. But, but my, my thought would be we need to add at least one more category to that. LGBTQIAH. And the H is heterosexual. What do all those people in that long line, in that acronym, have in common? Every last one of them is broken. Every last one of them struggles to honor God in sexual purity. Not just L, not just T, not just Q, but H. Every single person in that list is a broken person who desperately needs God's hand in their life to help them walk in a manner that pleases Him. Listen, when you get that in your life, when you understand that in your life, you will never be the one to sit in judgment of someone whose struggle is different than your struggle. It's still a struggle. And in more ways than not, it is like your struggle. It's not different. It may be same-sex attraction or opposite-sex attraction, whatever it is, but to remain pure and walk in holiness before God is a struggle. And you need help. And I need help to do that well. We miss honoring God when we allow sin to master over us. And lastly, we miss honoring God when being a Christian becomes inconvenient and when standing up for Jesus makes you seem weird or different. And you're not willing to take that stand for Jesus. That doesn't mean to be a, a weirdo and just to do stuff in a weird way to stand out for Jesus, but it means to stand up for truth with the love of God even when it makes you stand out as strange to others around you. Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. If you don't confess me before men, I won't confess you before my Father who is in heaven. It tells on us. Look, believing in this Jesus, understanding that he's equal with God, what difference does it make to me? It makes this difference. That when I believe and give my life to him, it begins to transform everything about who I am. Changes me from the inside out. Let me close with this story. There's a story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. It's not in John, but of a woman who suffered from bleeding for 12 long years. And in that culture and in that time when uh, a woman was bleeding in her menstrual cycle or in, in some other way, she was considered unclean in that time. This woman was considered unclean for 12 long years. And in being considered unclean, it meant that she needed to live apart from others that anyone who touched her would also be considered unclean. So they weren't to touch her. She wasn't to touch them. She was isolated, not for five days or two weeks, but for 12 years. 
And as the Bible talks about this story, we, we learn that this woman hears that Jesus is coming to town and is desperate for him. And she says to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. So she sets in her mind that whatever it takes, she's going to see Jesus. The, 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 the scene is that there is a throng of people, hundreds, probably thousands of people thronging around Jesus who are trying to, to get close to him. But this woman has a made up mind and she says, I'm going to touch the hem of his garment. She works her way through the, through, through the crowd touching people, pushing people out of the way, being pushed by others, but she makes her way through the crowd and she touches his garment and she is immediately healed. And Jesus says, who touched me? To his disciples. His disciples say, Jesus, what are you talking about? There's a hundred, a thousand people all around you. They're all touching you. He said, no, not like that. Someone touched me, and, and virtue, healing, power went out of me. The Bible says it this way, Luke 8, 47, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. This woman in front of everyone, she, she now, she had no shame left. She had no reason to hide anything. And she just told her whole story. She said, man, I came here, I've been bleeding for 12 years. I went to doctors, I went to others. I may have visited some so-called prophets. No one was able to heal me, but I made my way through this crowd and I touched Jesus and now I am perfectly healed. She, 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 she was able to disclose the secrets of her life that it would have been in some ways easier for her to just keep secret and this is just between me and Jesus. But before all the people, she declared what Jesus had done for her. Desperate people will do that. Are you desperate for Jesus today? Do you understand not only that he's equal with God, but you desperately need him in your life today? I pray that we will be people who are active, hungry hearers, listeners, and coming to God for what only He can give. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You today for You are good and Your mercy endures forever. Your faithfulness uh, to all generations. Lord, I pray as we've heard your word today, that it would stir in our hearts a desire to draw closer to Jesus. Some people may be asking, how do I do that? Pray that in the body of Christ gathered here, that others would be able to say, here's one way. Help me with this. Let's partner together. Let's grow together in Christ. Let's make our goals for growing Christ closer to Jesus more important than any other goal that I've ever written down in my life. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him. Grow our capacity and grow our desire for you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.